Hi again. I'm David Wilson, the editor and the publisher of the United Church Observer. You're listening to the first episode of the Observer podcast for 2017. It's produced by members of the magazine's editorial department. In each episode, we bring you some of the best stories and interviews from the magazine, as well as insights from our contributors. For the next little while, we'll hear from American theologian Walter Brueggemann and writer Shema Ben-Embarak. First, I'd like to share one of my recent observations columns with you. Last autumn, cottagers on a central Ontario lake sounded an alarm in their Facebook group. A loon that many of us had seen flailing around in the water appeared to be suffering from a broken leg. It needed help, but no one had a clue what to do. An injured leg is bad news for a loon at the best of times. Loons need their legs to fly. They literally run across the water, flapping their slender wings until they've gained enough speed to get airborne. With one leg out of commission and winter coming on, the bird on our lake was in grave danger. If it couldn't fly, it wouldn't be able to migrate south. The cottager's Facebook page hummed with questions, comments, and suggestions for rescuing the loon, but there wasn't much anyone could do. The bird would disappear under the water any time a boat got close to it. By early December, there was too much ice on the lake for the boats to go out and too little to attempt a rescue on foot. The loon's cry, so evocative in summer, became a solitary, haunting plea as winter approached. Those who heard it could only pray that the bird's suffering would end quickly. It's been that kind of season. Terrible things are happening everywhere, not just on a lake or to a bird, and well-intentioned people are seemingly paralyzed by helplessness. Nobody wants an angry young man to drive a transport truck into a crowded Christmas market, but there's not much we can do to stop it. Nor can we stop the soldier from pressing a button that will unleash a drone strike, killing dozens of innocent civilians thousands of kilometers away. We hoped against hope that voters in the United States would come to their senses and reject the odious Donald Trump, but they went ahead and elected him to the most powerful office in the world. And then there's Syria. The civil war raging there has left an estimated 470,000 dead since 2011. Thousands of them were children. It's created a refugee crisis of staggering proportions. Ask any decent person what should happen there, and the answer will be, stop the fighting. But decency seems to be no match for Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. What's more, there are competing superpower agendas prolonging the war. Russia wants to preserve its strategic foothold in the region and the United States remains reluctant to supply the rebels with weapons for fear they'll fall into the hands of jihadists. Last September, a Syrian girl named Bana Alabad, age 7, began posting pictures and videos on Twitter. She showed the grim realities of life for civilians who were trapped and pleading for help in the besieged rebel stronghold of East Aleppo. Aided by her mother, an English teacher, Bana attracted more than 300,000 followers worldwide with her posts. In early December, her account went silent, and her followers feared the worst. When she resurfaced, her tweets had become a cry of desperation. This is my last moment to either live or die, she wrote, 
as Assad's troops advanced. Thousands of kilometers away, a lake was freezing and a loon's cries were fading. The doomed bird couldn't have known that people on shore were suffering with it, in their own way. Bana's story ended better, if better means leaving everything behind to start a new life as a refugee. At least she and her family were alive. Her Twitter followers could take some satisfaction in knowing that their show of concern helped the family survive. Simply by being present, they had overcome helplessness, and they scored a win for hope in this season of despair. I, I think there's no doubt that, that uh, the, the, the justice question uh, now means that we have to do serious reform of the uh, criminal justice system and uh, the police system. All of that has been for so long uh, shaped in uh, racist categories uh, that we just cannot let it go on this way anymore. So we have a huge amount of work to do about that. And uh, I think uh, the impetus for that grows right out of the uh, prophetic mandate for justice. That's exactly what they were talking about. You're listening to Walter Brueggemann. The author of more than 100 books, Brueggemann has long advocated for political engagement and biblical justice, as well as a more neighborly economy. He spoke on the phone to St. Louis-based contributor Alicia von Stamwitz. We need to we need to mobilize uh, uh, voter power uh, so that we get uh, people in uh, positions of public leadership that have some passion about these matters. But along with uh, the kind of uh, formal uh, political work that needs to be done, uh, what churches need to be doing uh, is to establish long-term conversational uh, patterns that reach across racial lines uh, we can't we can't not just engage in do good gestures but we've got to make the kind of time commitment that will let us genuinely listen to each other and hear each other's stories and uh, I I don't think there's any any substitute uh, for that kind of uh, uh, personal interaction that lets us find out that people who are so unlike us have narratives that are almost like our stories. The other, the other thing is that we just don't want to be inconvenienced. Uh, it takes uh, a great deal of time and energy uh, to stay at uh, those, that kind of dialogic interaction over time. And uh, we're just, uh, I think we're just too settled in our patterns and uh, we don't want to make the effort. Uh, and the, the fear uh, probably helps that along, but I think in addition to fear, uh, it's just inconvenient. It is uh, completely unhelpful to be having a conversation about capitalism or socialism or communism. What we have to talk about is neighborliness. And what we have to think about is how we 
can develop economic practices and economic policies that are in fact neighborly. And I suspect when we get down to cases uh, that that's, that's going to have to be a mix of what we call capitalism and what we call socialism. But I am not, inter- I am not interested for one minute in questions of capitalism and socialism. The, the, the accent of the, of, the, of the Bible is consistently about neighborliness as it gets expressed in political and economic matters. And the question is, how do we, how do we organize our, our money and our power uh, for the good of the neighborhood? The neighborhood being taken, you know, quite locally and quite expansively. I, th- I think you know the the, the uh, prophetic vision is that the that the whole the whole populated earth is a neighborhood, and and the question is how do the how do the neighbors who have power and resources and the neighbors who are without power and resources how do they understand that they have a common destiny and they have to if they have to work together because we're all in it together. And the whole uh, ideology of privatism uh, is the assumption that people with power and resources can can create little oases of well-being uh, that fence everybody else out. I suppose Donald Trump's wall is a is a is an illustration of that. But but that's what we try to do all the time. We we try to do it with healthcare. We do it with schools. We do it with housing. We do it with all of the big economic questions as though somehow uh, you can have a, a protected zone uh, that does not have to be shared with everyone. And, and what we have learned through the, the 20th century is uh, that there are not enough guns and there are not enough dogs and there's not enough military power to protect privatized zones of well-being that they are they're simply not sustainable. And uh, it's, a, it's an illusion uh, to think that that's possible. So it means the, the re-characterization of all of our uh, social relationships uh, in ways that are healthy and generative and restorative. Uh, but I think that's what uh, King was talking about when he said, I have a dream. I think uh, all of that uh, would be included under what he called his dream. That was our conversation with Reverend Walter Brueggemann. He's a United Church of Christ minister based in Cincinnati. His most recent book is God, Neighbor, Empire, and it's published by Baylor University Press. Shema Ben Embarak was born in Saudi Arabia. She was raised in Morocco and moved to Canada in 2005. 
Two years ago, she relocated to Toronto. At first, the city seemed so much bigger, so indifferent, even threatening, until a chance encounter on the subway one day. Have a listen. I was born in Saudi Arabia, grew up in Morocco, and moved to Canada in 2005. I first settled in Montreal, where I lived for nine years. Two years ago, I relocated to Toronto. At first, it seemed so much bigger, so impersonal, hectic, even threatening. Soon enough, I began to rehearse absurd self-defense techniques, just in case I needed them during my daily commutes on public transit. Here's one scenario in reaction. Someone grabs my bag and starts running. I run after them and scream, the only thing worth anything in there is my permanent residency card. And if I have to renew it, it's going to be a bureaucratic nightmare. But you can have the cigarette pack and the strawberry scented hand cream. I was constantly on edge. Then one day, as I was changing streetcars, I heard someone yell, go home. I'm a visible minority, a Muslim. And my immediate reaction was to assume that I was being singled out. With rising anger, I prepared to scream back, you go home and read the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, but realized it was just one traffic controller yelling affectionately at another whose shift had just ended. More recently, something unusual happened. I stepped onto a packed subway train at the end of a long day and sat down. I must have seemed exhausted, because suddenly, the young woman next to me gestured for me to take off my earphones, which I typically wear on the subway precisely so I can avoid speaking to anyone. Assuming the worst, my first thought was, what? She wore freshly applied lipstick. Her brown curls fell gently around her face, and her eyes were soft. She said, you know, you can relax your shoulders. It's really okay if you rest a bit against me if you need to. I didn't know what to say. I managed to thank you and resisted the urge to hug her and gradually allowed my shoulders to relax and rest against hers. We didn't say much else and we didn't become friends, but being able to trust a random stranger in a big city, if only for a few minutes, felt good and safe. When the train pulled into her stop, she turned to me to signal her departure and stood up. She looked at me one last time, smiled and said, Take care. I replied with a very enthusiastic, you too. For the rest of my commute, I sat there with a mixture of bewilderment and warmth. I later related the incident to my boyfriend, a bona fide cynic. His response was filled with suspicion. Wait, I don't understand. What did she want from you? Nothing, it seems. That was the beauty of it. And since then, I've been trying to be better. I've been trying to have a little more patience and faith. So if someday, we end up sitting next to each other, and I breach your bubble by offering you my shoulder, because it looks like you need it, try not to say, what? Shema ben is a writer and editor based in Toronto. When we last checked, she was still taking public transit.
You've been listening to the Observer Podcast, which can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes, where you can rate and review us. At ucobserver.org, you can find links to everything we talked about in this episode. Also, you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at uc underscore observer. This podcast was recorded by David Wallen and produced by our digital content editor, Kevin Spurgaitis. Music was provided by Poddington Bear through the Free Music Archive and Grammy-winning composer Moby through Moby Gratis. And it's hosted by me, David Wilson. The Observer's print and online editions are put together every month by me, Jocelyn Bell, Kaylee Moore, Elena Gritson, Mike Milne, and Ross Wolford. We'd like to acknowledge the financial support of the Government of Canada through the Canada Periodical Fund of the Department of Canadian Heritage. That's it. We'll be back with another Observer podcast in the coming months. See you next time.